Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. Our guest today is Daniel Scrivener, CEO of Flow, the flexible project management app for teams. Daniel's had a really interesting career. As a self-taught designer who began his career as a freelancer, he worked his way up first at the advertising firm DDB before joining Apple's marketing communications team and eventually becoming the director of design for Square. All this before becoming CEO at Flow almost two years ago now. Our chat covers a wide range of topics, from how to stand out in a crowded marketplace to why it's a bad idea to judge your product's success simply by how much time people are spending in it. I really enjoyed this conversation. So let's head over to the studio and hear from Daniel. Daniel, we're delighted to have you join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for that. Can you start things off by giving our audience just a bit of insight into your background and how you worked your way up to becoming CEO and CCO of Flow? Because you've had a pretty impressive and wide reaching resume up to that point. Yeah, thank you so much, Dee. Super happy to be here today and happy to jump in. Yeah, so my background's definitely atypical. Like, just to rewind, give everyone maybe a little bit of context. I've been doing design work at a bunch of different levels over the last 15 years. My whole career to date is primarily design focused. And then about a year and a half ago, I took a giant leap to move from being kind of design executive into the CEO role at Flow. And I'm happy to dive into that, share as much context, but kind of for me, maybe just the one note I would share is, you know, I have three things that I that I love and that I can't help but just be constantly kind of fascinated and obsessed by. And those are design, just kind of everything to do with design. I've done everything from marketing design to product design to branding, advertising. Uh, so just kind of design as a skill set, as a way of looking mm-hmm. at the world is something that I love. And then the two other loves are investing in business. And so, you know, the way that kind of, my career shift makes a ton of sense to me is it's the intersection of of those things, especially in my latest mm. role. Great. And b- before Flow, then you had the creative director role at Square. And, you know, where else had you been? Yeah. So I have not bounced around a ton. So mm. I started out my career as a freelancer. And really, that was just absolutely out of necessity. You know, for me, I knew that I loved design. I knew that this was the thing that I wanted to do. That said, I had no clue about how mm. to kind of progress and and end up at you know the companies I've been like looking backwards now. I'm obviously really thankful. I feel lucky. I'm super appreciative of the places I've been able to work. But starting out my career, it was definitely a like, I want to do this, so let me just do anything and everything I can to kind of get business. And so I started out working for free. Then as I got a little bit of a portfolio work, that I could get some clients and. You know, and then I went on to land bigger clients. And so that was maybe the first two years of my career. Then I moved to Los Angeles and worked for an advertising agency in LA called DDB. Then from there, I made the move to San Francisco and was at Apple for just a little over three years. And then I had a bizarre moment at Apple one day where I was maybe to rewind. If I was to rewind a few years before when I was at Apple, you know, I feel like I would have been lucky if you were to ask me, like, would you like to work at Apple? You know, how would that work? What would that look like? It was absolutely something that I wanted to do. I just thought it would be much, much, much later in my career. And so I was super sure. fortunate in that I had it early on in my career. And I kind of think of that period of my life, period of my career as kind of a design boot camp because with no formal education, I don't have a design degree. That was me learning what I call repeatably excellent design, you know, where you can do it great work again and again and again. So I was at Apple for three and a half years, went and made the move to Square where I was for 
five and a half years and ended up leaving the team and reporting into Jack Dorsey and growing the design team from four to 40. And then today uh, I'm a flow as a CEO. Yeah, what a great way to cut your teeth because you've described yourself before as a self-taught designer. How did that come about, Daniel? Yeah, it came about as necessity, but I think a big part of it was just how I how I grew up. So, you know, I grew up with a mathematician, scientist for a father who was worked at DARPA, so kind of, you know, super nerdy, super technical, definitely like wants to look at problems from kind of all angles and figure out how to solve them. And I've definitely taken a lot of inspiration from that. And then my mom was a teacher I and mean, she taught elementary school for decades and decades uh, before she retired. And so just growing up at home, you know, one of our favorite things to do as a family, as bizarre as it sounds, was just to go to the library. And for us, that was this magical place where we would just go there as a family. You know, I've got two younger brothers. We would all break off. We'd all go to our different places at the library. And I think just from a very early age, for me, if there was something I wanted to learn, my first thought was, well, how do I figure that out? You know, what books can I read? What seminars could I go to? What can I figure out about it? And so that's just, you know, innate in how I think it's innate. And if there's anything I'm interested, I'm going to go and try to figure out how to learn about that myself uh, and kind of look out the best people and the best resources. And then with, you know, design and how I ended up being self-taught there, again, I kind of, I stumbled into it. So I stumbled into design really early. When I was in high school, I needed to, I wanted to graduate early. One of the classes I ended up taking over over uh, one summer in order to do that was a class all about HTML and how to build websites. And you know, now we have HTML and CSS and JavaScript, and it's much, much more technical, as I'm sure <laughs> the audience knows. But back then, yeah. it was just HTML. And so I took that class, really didn't have any expectations of it. It just sounded like a cool class if I needed to get credit. It seemed like a cool way to do it. And I just had this magical aha moment when I was in that class where suddenly I found this thing where I could have an idea in my head, an idea of what I want to create. I could create that myself and then I could share it with other people. I could you know, send someone the URL, send a friend, send a family member. And I just got hooked on that process. But And then what it really quickly led to was, okay, but now I don't really want to share anything because it looks really bad. And you know, what is this thing? How do you go about taking something and, and making it look quote unquote good, or at least is, is, you know, the way I liked it? And that was my foray into design. Wow, that's pretty cool. And that natural inquisitiveness that you mentioned a little bit earlier, I'd imagine that's very useful in, in your other line of work as an investor. How do you identify the companies that you invest in? I think it's just a ma- like a meta skill that unlocks so much in life, you know, especially yeah. I think another example would just be as a CEO, you know, as a CEO, there is no way, you know, I've heard it said before that like business is not something you can learn. Like, you know, and when you go to business schools, you're just primarily learning through a bunch of case studies. So you're learning through metaphor, you're learning through analogy. And then at some point in time, you know, when you actually find yourself in the role, there are, you know, daily, there are challenges you have no experience in, you have kind of, in some ways, no business solving. And yet the role is to try to figure out, you know, how to, how to go about solving these things, how to understand them, how do you become better at them as a company? And so I think for me, if, you know, your goal in life, which is kind of roughly how I just think about myself is, you know, I kind of think of life in some ways as a video game and I just want to keep leveling up and and getting better at what I love and getting better just as a person and working with incredible people. And if that's something you want to do, then I think it's absolutely this master key that unlocks so much of that. That makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of the work you do as an investor, what is the typical decision-making process like at Black Ladder? Would you you find that a lot of your decisions are 
are kind of informed by that design perspective. It, I mean, I definitely bring that angle to the table. And I think mm-hmm. the ways that I try to think about that when I'm, you know, researching a company are really, and I think a lot of times maybe to set it up a little bit better for the audience, you know, there's, so that process is typically called due diligence. You kind of find, usually the way it works is you will find a company that you're interested in, and then you need to go about traversing point A to point B. And point A is, I found a company that I think is really interesting and, and really promising. And point B is, now I'm actually going to take out my checkbook, you know, write a check for this. And when you do that, just for context, especially if it's an early stage company, you know, you're looking at five to 10 years average holding time for one of these investments. You know, the company's going to go through a ton of ups and downs and it's going to change a lot from the time you write that check, you know, hopefully forever as it continues to kind of progress as a company. And so in that due diligence process, definitely something that I look at is, which I think is critical, no matter, it doesn't, I think today, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what company you're looking at, industries are really crowded because the barrier to entries just drop to the floor. And so there's more companies competing in every market. And given that, I think one of the, again, this kind of meta skill that can just make you a better competitor, I think as a company, and, and hopefully it makes you over time a better business, meaning you're able to attract customers, retain those customers, you know, generate value for them and ultimately get profit from, from keeping that customer around as long as possible. And I think that one of the things is that there's just no... You can no longer be okay at this. I think in order to have an exceptional business, you have to be great at it. And it's really just how do you stand out from the pack? So how do you differentiate yourself from the other companies, both externally, meaning what's the story you tell to potential customers? What's the story you tell to the world? Also internally, you know, what's the story that you are all holding on to as a company about what you're building, why, why it's important, why it makes sense? How do you keep those things living and breathing? And ultimately, you know, from a customer's perspective, how do you stand out in a really crowded market? And just the, it's a little bit of a messy analogy, but one of the like visuals in my mind that just seems to click for me is, you know, it's like going to the grocery store aisle and looking for something that is ultimately very generic. Like, you know, here in the States, you can go to Whole Foods, uh, you can go to the ketchup section and there's probably 20, 30 brands depending on the size of the store and they all roughly sell the exact same thing. And so I think that's such a great example of how most companies have to find a way to stand out and break through the pack. And even if you think what you do is very different, you still have to figure out how you communicate that to the world and how you do it in a way that resonates. So then how do you apply that to your work at Flow? Uh, Yeah. So for a little bit of context, so Flow has been around for 10 years. We're celebrating our Mm. 10th anniversary this year. So it has a long track record, you know, and and it has had a lot of, you know, amazing leaders before I got the chance to come to flow and take over as a CEO about a year and a half ago. And so when I came just for a little bit more context, you know, I think we were at a little bit of a crossroad where, and this is something I'm fascinated by. So let me just lay out kind of the way that I think about the the problem that I've been solving with the team is, you know, I think, you know, if you just zoom out a little bit and think about the stories we all hear about businesses, you know, through the media or through friends, primarily it's just these really sexy, almost like magic bullet stories. It's, you know, either this company that's been around for five years, but now we're talking about it because it's just kind of hit this major milestone, or it's the kind of early chapters, early story of a company. And that's become something that we just, you know, I think fantasize about. There's kind of a lot of mythology around it. And it's just something people find really interesting. I think because we all, as humans, we're trying to find little tricks, little things we can learn. And so we all want to pay attention to these outliers. But I would say most of the stories about businesses are 
you know, there you're reading stories of like the, the one or two percentile businesses. And it's primarily focused on this kind of glorified early, early story of the company. And so what I think is way more applicable, what I think is a much more interesting thing is, is what I saw at Flow, which is all throughout the US, all throughout the world. Sure, there are a lot of great companies that take off and get traction in very little time. But primarily, most companies, if they're lucky enough, you know, manage to be around for 5, 10, 15, 20. You know, and then there's companies that have been around for decades or 100 plus mm. years. You know, But to do that, you have to constantly be reinventing yourself. And so what I saw at Flow was a company that had had a tremendous amount of success to date, but it found itself in a very different environment. You know, there was like super competitors, maybe you would call them in our market, like Asana and Monday that have raised a tremendous amount of venture capital and have just become these kind of acquisition machines. There mm. are these small kind of boutique players like Basecamp and Todoist. I'm not saying that in a demeaning way. They have great businesses, they have great products, but um, they're playing a little bit of a different game. And you know, so what I needed to try to sort out at Flow was, you know, how do we take what has gotten us here? How do we take this kind of the spark? How do we take what has attracted people to flow over the years, what's continued to make them love it and choose it over other products. How do we then hold on to that, polish it up, amplify it? And so what we've been doing for the last year is kind of ushering in the next chapter of growth for the company. And what that's looked like is looking at all of those things. So what is the, what is the product we're building? What features does it have? What things do we want to build? What things do we feel strongly we shouldn't build? All of that work. And the way that's crystallized is in a brand new version of the product that we call FlowX that's in beta with 600 of our largest customers today. And we're going to be opening that up to all of our customers in the next couple of weeks. So we've been you know, a year plus of development work on that. And we're now starting to get it out the door, which is really exciting. But then we also had to do that same thing everywhere else. So we've done that same exercise and marketing of again how do we stand out what what is you know if i think back to that ketchup analogy i don't think we were standing out i think we look like a, a <laughs> you know previously we look like a brand that someone would just skip over and not even think about so we had to spend some time there spend time on what's the story that we want to tell about the product what's the story we want to tell about why people should try flow and use flow and why they'll love flow and then we've done that same thing everywhere else and so in my mind what i'm really trying to get to is you know, just kind of see this like vertical alignment. I want the product to be the thing that supports everything and be this incredible thing that, you know, brings people to flow, makes them love using flow. I want the marketing wrapper that we put around that to help just more people know about us, to help us reach more people, to help us continue to grow. I want the brand to kind of make sense in that vein. And so long story short, we've, we've kind of refreshed everything or are in the process of refreshing everything. And what we're leading towards is a, you know, July relaunch of uh, the company with this new product oh, wow. that will be available to everyone. And you've been working on this for the last year, year and a half, you'd said, but yes. presumably over the last few months, like a lot has happened that <clears throat> may have impacted your plans, yeah. to say the least. Yes. I mean, you are a remote first company, so presumably that made weathering the current climate a little bit easier on your teams. But when you're, when you are planning, you know, as you have been for that big relaunch, how have you had to adapt? Yeah. So I guess just jump back to that first part of your question. Yeah. One thing that I am endlessly grateful for is that we just have built up these muscles of how we build an incredible product as a fully remote team. Because in my experience, one that's very rare, I think a lot of companies have kind of been forced into tackling that and figuring that out as part of the coronavirus and kind of the effect that's had on every company and every team. But I think primarily when people think about the product development process, they 
almost exclusively think about it in person because, you know, there are a lot of really wonderful things that happen in person, you know, and I got to experience a lot of that when I was at Apple. Like when we were at Apple, it would usually be kind of a very small team, say, I don't know, somewhere from five to 10 or 12 that would be literally put in a room. You were the project team that was on this. You would all be exploring, you know, in the early innings of the project, you'd all be exploring what you were about to tackle going in very different directions. You'd be sharing that work every single day. You know, you'd be kind of cross-pollinating and grabbing the best ideas from each person, from each part of the team and trying to grab those all together. And I think that there are some really magical things that happen in that part of the process, I think when you're mm. in person. And so I think the biggest challenge is just, yeah, how do you, maybe maybe split it apart. There's like, and this is going to be a little coarse, but you know, because it's a little bit more intricate than this. But when you think about building a product, I think there are really two things you have to be doing at all times. One is the kind of vision exploration part of great product development, which in my mind is if you want to, and this is maybe a little specific to what we're tackling a flow, but one of the things that we've committed to that we feel really strongly about is we want to have a product that is built in a flexible way. So we want to have the features that you'd expect, the features that you need, hopefully some features that you might think are just a great bonus that might introduce you into some new ways of working. But we want to execute those really, really, really simply because we have a small team. We want our products to feel lightweight. We want someone to be able to pick them up really quickly. But we then want, once you learn it, we want them to be flexible and kind of open-ended so you can use them in various ways, depending on how you like to uh, work as a team. Because one thing I will just say about the space we're in that I don't know if I had any illusions about it, but I think it's just been hammered into me over the last year is when you build something like task and project management, what you really quickly find out is like every team has the same basic building blocks of like, here's a plan, here's our kind of, you know, whether it's a roadmap or whether it's the goals that we have for the quarter, or OKRs, you have some sort of planning element, you have some sort of coordination element, which is kind of like project management. And then you have some sort of like delegation task, like we have to do this thing. How's this going? Can I help? Is this, you know, is this going to run late? And there's kind of a logistical piece. And while all those pieces are the same, almost every company approaches them in a very, very, very different way. And it's also evolving at other companies. And so I think, you know, those things I just outlined, like those were kind of hunches I had that have definitely been confirmed that we have to just be good at, you know, building something that's simple so people can learn it, but is ultimately flexible. And so that exercise, if that's what you want to get to, that takes a lot of exploration and iteration. And so I think the biggest thing that's been helpful for us as a team is just being really vocal about that for us, product development isn't from getting from A to B as quickly as possible. It is really this, it's almost like the scientific method applied to product design because it is this like, we have big problems or, or big things that we're focused on tackling at the moment, but we try to take a really iterative approach to those where we're going to try a lot of things. We're going to try some of those in design. We're going to try some of those in code and, and ship it in an internal beta that we all use as a team. Sometimes we'll do hacky things just if we want to make a big change that maybe has a lot of technical work required to kind of bring that to reality in a really durable way for all of our customers, you know, so we might try a little hacky thing just to try to like approximate what it feels like. So I think that's one thing you have to be good at. And that is really hard to do remotely. And I think for us, it's just been 
being really direct, really open as a team about what's not working, what's working well, how do we amplify that? How do we kind of clarify that? And I don't think it's ever something that you just figure it out. <laughs> it kind of goes. Um, and then the other piece of stuff that we're always doing is kind of the day in, day out tactical work of, you know, we have to build these features this week. We need to let customers know and an update to all customers. And so I'd say that latter piece is easy. That former piece is really, really, really hard. And I think that the way that that works best is just you have to build up that muscle as a culture and as a team over time. And so I'm just grateful that we had a lot of reps before we got to this period. Yeah, I can imagine because I've heard you say before that the like the ideal future for Flow is that you'll have built a tool that gets more powerful the less that people need to use it. So, you know, if what you're saying, if you're trying to achieve something that kind of nuanced, it can be quite difficult if people aren't in the same room together. Yeah, it can be quite difficult. It can be quite difficult if people are in the same room together. Absolutely. And I would just say on that, you know, or really trying to get to just to maybe put a little bit of a finer tip on that point or that idea is I think one thing that this is, uh, you know, a perspective I brought to flow just as I have had over the years, I've used different, you know, kind of project management software. I definitely have had my own iterations on what do I do personally. I've worked with different teams that have had different processes. So I kind of had had a little bit of a constellation of experience to draw from as I was thinking about this. But one thing that kind of hit me over the head as I was really kind of gearing up to take on this role of flow was and trying to think about how to set flow apart. One thing that was really apparent to me is I think what we're seeing now, because so much capital is poured into the space, is that there's a lot of companies that are just incentivized to outship each other. And that's the way that they're yeah. competing. And so there are companies like, just to name one of our competitors, you know, there's a, companies like ClickUp that we compete with that, you know, literally on their roadmap has a publicly stated goal to ship one new feature per week. And, you know, I, I internally, maybe that feels good. Maybe that sounds good. In my experience, there's just absolutely no way to do that and have it be a consistently high quality product that doesn't end up feeling bloated and all over the place over time. And so when, you know, and so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing that we're seeing people ship stuff just because the way I've described it to our team internally is I think the way a lot of people compete is they don't really know how to make something of striking quality. So the only thing that they think works, hope works, is just more, 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 more. So just trying to pile on additional features. And what I think that's leading to in some cases is you have tools that make it feel like your job should be living in this tool all day long. You know, this is where you're actually yeah. getting work. This is where you're producing value. And yet that couldn't be further from the truth of almost everyone I've ever worked with. Like I think for almost everybody today, if you're at a tech company, if you're building a company, if you're in product, if you're in engineering, if you're in design, all your work happens outside of those apps. Like all your real impactful value add work is deep work that you do. And so really what we want to do with Flow is make it, a product that understands that we want to make it so it's powerful enough that you can kind of hold all the pieces together, keep everybody on the same page. But we want to make it this thing that ideally you check in the morning, you check middle of the day, you check in the in the evening. And just from that minimal amount of usage, you know, as a team, you're able to really feel the effects of, wow, we're, we're way more on the same page than we were before. Anytime I have a question, I don't have to go and tap a teammate. I can go and look at this task and flow and see the activity on it and drop a comment in it. And so it is really just the like, I don't know, minimum viable is kind of a dirty word and it's not really that, but it's like 
there's this thing in exercise called a minimal effective dose of exercise of like, rather than going to the gym and just slamming weights for an hour, how do you, you know, and destroying your body over a period of time, how do you not do that? And how do you just do just enough to get stronger without doing too much harm? And I think there's that same thing when it comes to productivity of how do you be planful enough, organized enough, think deeply enough, and yet understand that like real work is going to happen outside that, that tool or outside that process. Yeah, because ultimately these things are tools. They're not meant to be the work itself. They're just meant to facilitate it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but... For every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. For design teams now who are working remotely and, you know, many are not expected to be back into an office maybe even this year at all. What other two, like outside of Flow... What other tools would you recommend design leaders include in their tech stack? That's a, yeah, it's a great question. To be super honest, I mean, one of the best tools I think is just more time in, in person doing, you know, one thing that I try to do at Flow that we try to do as a team is just to make sure that, so for, to give it, to maybe make it a little bit more grounded, like one thing we're working on at the moment is, and we're deep on is reinventing, kind of refreshing how projects work and flow. And so that's something that in some ways it's like a small enough piece of work, or at least it's somewhat compartmentalized, like it's a tab in our new app. So in the new version of Flow, uh, in FlowX, there's a projects tab. That's where you'll be able to navigate all the projects that you have across teams. You'll be able to see the projects that matter to you. In a pin section, you'll be able to see the status of it. And so we're really deep into that. And like with anything, as I described earlier, at least the way that I think about it is there's a lot of routes that we can take. And so what Mm. we want to be... I think good at all the time is let's not jump into a route just on a hunch or on a thought or on a personal preference. Let's try as much as possible to, again, maybe treat it more like a, it's a scientific project. And so you want to look at it from all angles. And the way that I think about that in terms of the design world is you just want to do a lot of exploration. And that was one thing that I picked up at Apple that I've held really near and dear 
ever since then is I think one thing that they did really well that I, since I've been at Apple, I've seen no other company do this well, just because I think a lot of people don't get it because it requires a different way of thinking is the way that they structure their design projects is, you know, if you're going to work on something, sometimes not to give any, you know, specifics, but sometimes on a project at Apple, maybe you'd be working on something for say three months, six months, maybe it's a little bit shorter than that, but I would say three months is kind of the sweet spot. You would spend the first four weeks, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe somewhere in the four to six week range, just doing exploration. So you're not shipping stuff. You're not handing stuff off to engineers. You're working with engineers on explorations of, you know, we, I think we should maybe present this section in a tab. What are all the different ways we could visualize the tabs? What are different ways that we could structure it? Or maybe how could you animate in between the tabs or what are some different interactions that we could use? And so it was just this really wonderful open-ended, exploratory, inquisitive kind of part of the process. And so we've tried mm. to bring that in in at Flow. And I think really that doesn't require any special tools. I mean, I, I use paper and pencil all day long. <laughs> um, and that is kind of where I go to start. Then I'll bring things into Photoshop, which is still the app that I prefer to work in. And sometimes I'll work in Sketch or in Figma. But for the most part, I continue to find myself in in Photoshop, I try to do as many explorations as I can. And then I try to make sure as a team that we have time set aside for in-depth conversation where it is like, you know, and the way I traditionally try to structure those is let's have the first, say, 10, 15 minutes of the meeting just being going through and describing what we're seeing here, why, why this was something we were exploring, what we think is interesting and not interesting. And then the second, you know, we save the rest of the meeting really for what we like to think of as great open-ended questions. So it's not, we try to think about it less as critique, less as like, here's what I think, although that's always welcome too. Um, but, but I think better than any, you know, critique or feedback is really just amazing questions that can kind of, you can put in the back of your mind, you can think about, you can come back to again and again and again. And so there's certainly tools that we use. You know, we, we will put stuff in Envision. We definitely use Zeppelin. We'll do some light prototyping sometimes. Um, sometimes we'll animate stuff and maybe turn it into a GIF or something that's easily shareable. But I would say, at least the way that I like to think about it is not be overly reliant on these tools and mm. think about it more as a way of thinking, a way of approaching design and a culture, a culture around how you create things. What are the values that that kind of expresses? And so I would just say, I think the best tool is just that cultural component, that kind of free, but very hard earned cultural component and getting that right over, over time and just biasing on inhuman interaction and like open-ended, yeah. in-depth, generous discussions. That's like, that's a really interesting kind of insight that you've shared into how, like how you think and how you work. So I'm actually quite curious though, like at the moment, yeah. we're almost universally appraising how we live and work and our built and digital environments. So like with that kind of very particular way of working or thinking, like what sort of role do you think that design and designers can play in coming out of the current crisis? Because it's a, it's a unique perspective to bring to the table, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, I, I, it's, I feel like it's, it's a hard question to answer in a lot of ways. Sorry. I think, um, like, I think what this has made us realize, and I'm sure a lot of other teams have realized this as well, is the point I would make is like, I think by and large, the tools we have today aren't all the tools we need to do great work remotely. And the way that I would frame that up, maybe a little bit higher level, because I, I think that. Uh, you know, right now there are a lot of people that are focusing on this whole remote thing of like, we used to 
be in person. Maybe mm. we've all worked in an office together, but now all of a sudden we're at home. But we kind of still have that inhuman, you know, that like in-person connection to be able to lean on. And I think the trend that we're we're in the very early innings of that will play out, and it will probably take decades to play out all the way, is just basically getting rid of all the structure, getting rid of all the closed-mindedness, all the kind of esoteric ways of thinking about work. And I think what that's going to open up is, you know, we're doing a little bit today, but we're going to work together from around the world, different countries, different languages. We're going to work in different time zones from one another. We are likely going to work with people that we have very little in-person kind of contact with ever potentially. Yeah. And I still think that, you know, the best cultures will always have a big element of in-person because I think there's just no way to replicate that. And so, yeah, I guess the way that I think about it is just like, how do we create, you know, kind of these digital tools that can help us work together in that context I just shared, you know, 24-7 around the globe in different languages. And I think the big move will be, you know, better asynchronous tools because I think today what we have is a lot of tools that, at least for me, in previous kind of roles, you know, tools like Slack, tools like Asana, uh, tools even like Flow, you know, we've thought of, about the role that we play here for sure a lot. But I find that my workday is just constantly interrupted by, by uh, my, first off, I get into the, the office and my calendar is like shotgun blasted with meetings. Then, <laughs> you know, no, none of those tools do I like going to. I try to go on a call. There's like five different call things to go between, you know, and then I'm sharing notes on a Dropbox paper doc. And then I'm over here in email and Gmail. And it's just, I find that my day, at least like the setup as things are today, just feels frenetic. <laughs> like it does not generate a sense of presence and calm and, you know, thinking about how you want to show up in this interaction with the people you're going to be talking to. And, and so I think if anything, and it's going to be a very, maybe a very designery answer, because I, I don't think there, I don't see any silver bullet. So the way that I would just think yeah. about it is kind of what tools can we have that again, can take this minimum viable approach where they know that productivity doesn't happen in these tools most of the time. It's kind of a supporting or girding structure around it. And how do you make great, you know, great tools that allow people to have more control over their schedule and how they like to work? And ideally, how can you do it in a way that's not manipulative? Because I think, you know, that's something we focus on at Flow as well, too, of how we treat push notifications, how we treat badging of different tabs in the app. But I think there are a lot of tools today that, again, just they all that they grade themselves on it is this super blunt term of engagement, which really just means the more people can be in this app, the more they can click, the more they can do something, even if all we're doing is like hit triggering dopamine releases in their brain. So they think they're doing things, but they're not really doing, <laughs> doing things like I think a lot of products are playing that game. And so I think that what we really need is, yeah, humane tools. You've used the word anti-metric, I think to yes. describe that before, um, yes. which I quite liked. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just, uh, in my mind, it's just one of the things that's broken today. And yeah, I think it's also just this, again, it's like in absence of deeper thought about what you should really be you know, like aiming for what you should really be focusing on in terms of metrics. I think something like engagement is just, it seems sexy. It seems cool that, you know, oh, people are spending more time in the app. They're doing more things in the app. And I guess the way I would describe it best is like, that's looking at it from in terms of first order. So you're looking at like, this person's doing these things, but again, like productivity, moving the ball forward, shipping things that, that matter, doing good work, that's more focusing on kind of second and third order effects of your work. And so I think that in my mind, you know, 
biasing for engagement feels intellectually lazy. It actually feels like in most times you're what you end up doing if you were to talk to that user is the, almost the opposite of what they really want. Like if we, you know, and we hear this from our customers all the time, like they want to spend as little time as possible in any app. They want to spend as much time as possible, you know, owning their schedule, being able to do the work that they find fulfilling, you know, being able to push that forward. And so, yeah, I definitely think it's an anti-metric. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to that that earlier point that you were making about these things. They're meant to facilitate, not be, you know, be the whole work. That's that's brilliant. It's a really interesting insight, Daniel. So before we let you go, though, we'd love to know if there's a business leader or even design leader, maybe, that you aspire to in your work. There, Yeah, that's a great question. The way that I think about it is just, I use this term constellation all the time, which in my mind is just whether I'm if I'm doing a design project, I'm trying to build a constellation of references and things that, you know, either directly or tangentially apply to what I'm working on. And really the way that I think about that is just, I, I don't want to have one source of inspiration or kind of one idea. I want to be able to triangulate and have say 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 of those things and be able to kind of, you know, cherry pick the things that I think are best from, from each of them and then combine them. You know, and that's how I think about it in the design process. And similarly, that's how I think about it in life. So I don't, you know, there's plenty of people that I really admire. I would say someone who is not a, generally, I would say is not a super popular figure that I find the way that he thinks about life, about work, super fascinating is Ray Dalio. You know, one of my favorite books is uh, his book, Principles. And he's worked in a very different field. He's built a, you know, quantitative hedge fund. It's one of the biggest in the world. And so it's a very different industry. It's a very different focus. It's a very different mm. type of work. But one of the concepts that I pulled from, you know, the book that he hits on really, really big. And I think, again, it's just one of those meta keys to unlock a lot in life is he talks about the importance of, you know, and this is super applicable if you're a CEO or you're a leader of a team is really what you're doing is you're kind of building this engine, you're building this system, this machine. Uh, and I don't mean that in an impersonal way. I just mean that in terms of like, you're ultimately trying to build something great that you put, you know, you have inputs that go into it and, and coming out the other side is just something incredible. It's kind of, you've had this amazing process between what's gone in and what's gone up the other side. And that same thing applies in, in business. And, you know, his, one of his big points is you need to be able to kind of zoom out and look down on that from above and really understand at any point in time, what's working, what's not working, how do I get this to the next level? And I found that super applicable because, you know, whether you're a designer in a team, whether you're, you know, CEO of a company, it is so easy to get lost in the weeds and you're just so up close to the problem. You can kind of rationalize all, you know, even if you know it's a problem, you can also, it's very easy for you to rationalize. Well, it's, you know, yeah, but it's not that bad and here's why and here's this inside context I have. And and it is sometimes I, I find just if you're, in that mentality for too long, it's just really hard to figure out the path forward because you're just always kind of, you know, it's like you're marching and you're looking down at your feet, just taking one tiny step at a time. And so just this concept of zooming out, being able to look down on what you're building, on what you're creating, and trying to optimize that as a whole system, I think is just a really fascinating approach. Yeah, that's great advice. That ability to step back is very, very important. Lastly, Daniel, before we let you go, where can people keep up with your work? Yeah. So people can find flow at getflow.com. And if you go to getflow.com slash intercom, you'll be able to sign up and get a, uh, an additional 25% off. So if anyone is curious, Thanks. if anyone wants to try it out, we have a super generous 30-day trial. You can go use all our pro features, no credit card required, cancel anytime. 
all of that good stuff. But if you go and try it, if you like it, you can get a 25% off promo code at giftflow.com slash intercom. Um, and then people can find my work at danielscrivener.com. Uh, my last name is S-C-R-I-V is in Victor, N is in Nancy, E-R. And I'm also at Daniel Scrivener on uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all of that good stuff. Super. Well, we will make sure to link to all of those, especially the offer in the blog that goes along with the podcast. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you today, Daniel. Thank you so much, Dee. It's been wonderful. We hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daniel. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Scale by Intercom, featuring Clearbit's Luke Diaz. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.